that the other night was not a discussion at all. I mean, it wasn't even an argument. It was nothing. Um, you know, I think sometimes, I learned a long time ago, I think sometimes uh, media chases controversy and players chase stats, all right? And both of them equal the same thing, and it equals money, all right? And, and I think that's where we're at with that story, you know? That's no controversy. There's no friction. There's nothing like that. That was a, I mean, we, we do the same thing and we, we suggest things and he's like, hell, that's a great idea. You're listening to Straight No Chaser on the DVN Network. Here's your host, my dad, Thelonious Seven. Cleveland Browns fan. 
For those of you who don't know, my name is Thelonious7 and you are listening to Straight No Chaser on Dogs by Nature. Ahead on Straight No Chaser, we're going to talk about the top five Browns players on their respective units and how this team is still forging an identity through the crisis and tumult of the last week's events. Hopefully we'll get to the Chiefs and Sunday's matchup with the guy that Easy we pounded the table for in Patrick Mahomes during last year's draft process. We're going to talk organizational structure, revisiting the issue that Fourth and Easy brought up uh, in terms of this organization's flowchart, power structure. And I also wanted to revisit a topic that I have before uh, in thinking about the decision-making process that coaches go through as they make decisions on the field. Maybe we'll talk a bit about what analytics means with respect to that. And finally, we'll give some unsolicited advice for our new game managers, Coach Will and Freddie Kitchens, of course. But before we get to that, I wanted to start this discussion by pouring one out for Hugh Jackson. You know, I take a more serious slant on this show, and I've had a ton of pointed opinions about Jackson as a coach. And even though I kicked off this show with a cover song mocking Hugh's pride, I want to be very clear about something. I have a lot of respect for the man that Hugh Jackson is, which is crazy, because perhaps he ended up being the worst coaching hire of all time. Not necessarily the worst coach of all time, but the higher, for sure. You know, there are so many examples of times where the Browns were not good. And even though I want to say that, you know, even though initially after hearing the news, you have this visceral, positive, happy response that you finally got this monkey off your back, this dude that you've seen bungling situation after situation over the past two years through a historically dry period of time for your team, This guy's finally gone. But the more I look at this situation, the more I take a step back, see it from the 10,000 foot vantage point, kind of look at this situation and I kind of see he was a victim of circumstances that are beyond his control. And it's, it's weird for me to sit here and say this right now because you're reading media, you're seeing accounts, you're seeing you know, on national shows, these guys going out there. And when you look and you see what's being said and then how people are responding to it, you have a lot of negative uh, opinion going around about the job that Hugh Jackson has done over the past uh, two and a half seasons here in Cleveland. And, you know, before I can even talk about how a lot of this stuff was out of Jackson's control, you really have to give an honest account of what Hugh Jackson's actually put on the record books in Cleveland in his tenure while it lasted. And flat out, that dude did not win enough football games. The team was flat out awful in 2016. And the quarterback play got even worse in 2017 with team being forced to field Deshaun Kaiser on a regular basis for their organization and that was very difficult as a fan to watch I you know covered most of these games uh, doing recaps and it was a very depressing time in my life and it's one of those things that spills over and it affects everything around you dealing with that kind of stuff and it did in the organization and yeah it's tough for the fans too It's very strange. I think that for the most part, as bad as the team was, a lot of the situation that came up with the Browns in those times were not necessarily issues of head coaching problems, not head coaching problems that he dealt with. For me, I feel like Hugh Jackson really struggled in the times when he tried to put on the GM's hat. I mean, he came to this organization in 2016 with a lot of pomp and circumstance, a lot of fanfare. People were really happy to see this guy come to Cleveland and hopefully establish a new era in in our football 
and it was going to be a hard rebuild. In 2016, of course, that was a difficult time for sure. But when he came into the organization, there was definitely an issue of there being no traditional football personalities in the organization. The guy who was in charge was Sashi Brown, and I know there's a lot of love around these parts for good old Sashi, and I, I also like Sashi Brown as well. But I've referred to Sashi Brown in the past as the as the benevolent capologist. And this is pretty much what I assume his tenure was sort of like. This guy was a, a business-minded, savvy contract negotiator who did a good job setting the team up in a business sense, in a cap sense for what they're going to do. But as far as him generating the kind of ethos that would drive team identity, this guy really didn't have much sense of what he was doing with this respect because he wasn't really spending time in locker rooms and coming up through basically football-related ventures. This is a guy who spent his time at Harvard. It's a guy who spent his time in business rooms, board meetings, and legal proceedings. And you need guys like this on your team. And in, in some ways, it's kind of interesting to imagine a guy like this leading the team. But then when it comes to making football decisions and having an identity, an ethos, a mission, a drive, a passion, those kind of guys don't really do it. They don't inspire people to go out and play football. And I think that when all of the the impetus, the energy, the motivation for that fell on Hugh Jackson, I think it ended up creating a very bad situation. Looking at what happened in his tenure at coach, I think the first year he had issues because he was being relied on to be more of a GM as well as a coach. And then, of course, when the personnel issues went wrong, when the quarterbacking issues were bad, they just kind of doubled down on it a little bit more in 2017. And it seemed like Jackson did have a lot of say over who he thought might be a, a, an interesting person to have as quarterback. I don't know. There may have been some discrepancies in 17, but in 16, it seemed like Jackson did what he wanted. He had his quarterback who got injured. Then he had rookies playing, and it was a very difficult situation for everybody that first year. Of course, his next year, he comes back with literally the worst quarterback room in the history of the NFL, and it led to an 0-16 record. He had literally no one to put on the field, and it was so bad that he got so desperate that he was willing to trade the future just for the opportunity to have a quarterback that wasn't the worst in history. That's how bad and stressful it was for the team, for the organization, and for Hugh Jackson. A very difficult time indeed in 2017. But as much as you think about these situations and these spots, and I don't really know if Hugh Jackson living through these spaces is feeling any sense of regret for what happened. But as much as he must be feeling some sense of regret, I would probably say it's about him not keeping his head down and staying committed to the things that he had done that brought him to that point at the time. Essentially, he was a very good offensive coordinator, and I still I still believe in Hugh Jackson in that role. The problem is, whenever he came to Cleveland, he never did that role in an appropriate uh, level of focus or depth. And when he first came here, he was kind of the, def- the de, facto, de facto offensive coordinator. It seemed like they were running his offense the first year. He didn't have any weapons or tools to establish this. But then in some ways, he was trying to be the, you know, the, the designer of the offense and also the guy that picks the offense. And, and historically speaking, for the most part, unless you have people around you in your organization you can trust to do these things that can work in conjunction with you, it's going to be very difficult for one person, for one man, to sit there and organize and marshal all these forces together. You know, an organization with some forethought, with some experience, would understand the type of problem this would create because this is not a new problem. This has gone on for many different iterations throughout recent NFL history where coaches end up playing too big of a role 
doing so many things that they don't do anything well. And Hugh Jackson is just another example of this. He had too much on his plate in 2016, got involved in personnel decisions in 16, had issues in 17 as well. And by the time 2018 came out, came on, there was such a level of baggage of losing throughout the fandom, throughout the organization, that a difficult start it was just untenable for Hugh Jackson. And a difficult start is exactly what Hugh Jackson had. This is a sad ending to me, to be honest. And, and certainly, like I'm telling you before, Hugh Jackson is far from being blameless. But in my opinion, I think that almost anybody would have a difficult time succeeding under Tennessee in the way that this organization was set up. And (laughs) the pilot has said it before. I mean, he said it in the past. It's difficult learning how to be an owner, negotiating the learning curve. And Hugh got a lot of time to make his mistakes and to learn and figure out what he wanted to do as Haslam's been learning. I mean, he was the guy in Haslam's ear at the beginning of this process. But yeah, there's a traditional sense of wisdom that you have when you're establishing an organization, a group. What teams traditionally do is they elect general managers and not always, but then the general managers hire the coaches and the coaches hire the staffs. The general managers pick the players, the coaches coach them up, the players play the game. That's how it always goes. Yeah, but in this case, that's not what's happened. And, you know, for the duration of the period of ownership that's been controlled by the current organizational ownership structure, they've never done that, that one thing, which is first hire a GM, allow the GM to pick a coach, and then allow the GM to select players that work with the coach's philosophy. The players play the game. The coaches coach the players. The GM picks the team. The owner keeps his hands out of it. Yeah, we haven't seen that structure yet in Cleveland. And in this current iteration of it, well, this current recent iteration of it, Hugh Jackson is a victim of it. In a situation where he would have been a very good coach to be the coach and coach the players. And that's it. He was in a job where he was doing the coaching. He was, you know, being the player's best friend. And additionally, he was managing the owner and managing the GM and working this angle against this angle and doing all sorts of things that were not limited to coaching his football team and making them better at what they were doing. There was so much stuff going on. And when he's focused on these other things, he can't focus on the things that, He's actually good at doing. And in the end, you have an example. It's very sad to look at in some ways. I feel bad for the guy. It's a sad ending to me. Like I said, far from being blameless. I and mean, we could even sit down and put them on a balance, right? I mean, for the good. The good, it's very clear what he was doing good. He's a very tough guy. He gave us all. And he worked in very, very negative conditions. And for the most part... I felt like the guys gave pretty good effort for him through two years. But, you know, even as I think about the fact that the players gave a lot of effort over that time and period, what we're talking about, even though the effort probably was there, I sometimes wonder if the effort might not have been in existence to keep these guys out the record book. I mean, it's one thing if you're 0-12 and... You know, you feel like you're about to be the first team in a long time never to win a game. Like, this kind of focus and energy could be used in a way that, like, okay, look, you don't want to be undefeated. You don't want to be the only uh, team without a win, I mean, in NFL history. So, let's work hard and get it together. And through these methods and means, you can keep a team motivated. But it's almost like you look at that team in, in Oakland right now with John Gruden. 
And the team got their one win. And, and when you think about it, man, how did they get that one win against Steve Jackson, right? Well, the team, they got their one win. They know they're out of the history books. So now they're not going to be linked in with the 2017 Cleveland Browns. <laughs> and since they know they're not going to be that bad, uh, we can just give up, whatever. Who cares? There's been a lot of one in 15 teams, right? So maybe a little bit of the motivation that people give him credit for maybe was something like this. But I, I don't know. For me, watching the games as I was looking at it at the time, I felt like he got pretty good effort from his guys all the time. And the guys always stayed around in games. You know, I felt like as an offensive play caller, he did some clever things that keep teams off balance. I don't think that he had the talent with which to, to really, you know, bring to life some of the things he had thought about, but I could see the creativity in some of the design that he was doing. And you know, initially as well, he did a really great job uh, serving as a media voice for the Cleveland Browns. I mean, it's, it's hard to sit back and even remember it at this point, but at the time when he first came through, I would say for the first year and a half, man, it was almost smooth sailing for this guy, even through a 1-15 in season. I feel like that's something that's kind of gotten overlooked because like I was really on board with him up through the Sashi Brown Brownie Gate iteration of problems that happened in the middle of 2017 right around a year ago from this time. So those are his positive traits. And I, like I said, I feel good about the things that he did well. At the same time, you have to look at the other side of the ledger. I mean, it was the game managing. It was a multitasking. I mean, for me, watching this guy manage a game, I mean, it was the same kind of mistakes that he had in the first two years where he was just doing things that, yeah, it was like he was making decisions, doing things from his gut, not really using a, a, a well-reasoned opinion every time in every situation for what he was doing. And I felt like this kind of wishy-washy, I don't know, <laughs> Jabril Peppers, man. It's got a wishy-washy approach to uh, decision-making. It, it ended up being very contagious in the locker room and around the team. That was a problem, I would say. I mean, because I'm sitting here as a dude just watching games from miles and miles away. Guys in the locker room are seeing that stuff every day. You have to think about these situations. This situation maybe back in Oakland. I mean, we're talking about a little bit in the threads this last week about the decision in Oakland where um, the Browns score a touchdown and they go up seven points on the touchdown. And Hugh Jackson elects to kick the extra point to make it an eight-point lead. Um, I, at the time, was yelling yelling profanities at the TV. I don't know if I got the show in that week, but in, and I was very, very, very upset about what happened in Oakland because it was incredibly... I don't care who thinks they're aggressive or who thinks they're smart or who thinks they have a really good idea to, to manage the situation in this way. Who thinks they can do this right? But if you don't understand that in that situation, in this point of the game, that this is a decision that could cost you a victory. The decision to go for the jugular at this point in the game when you're running the ball well, passing the ball well. A decision to go for that nine-point lead, the two-score lead in the dwindling moments of the fourth quarter as opposed to just taking the one-score lead. And in the end, like I was saying it before, it was like there's literally no downside to the play. I mean, if you miss the two-pointer, you're still up by a touchdown. You still got the same one score lead and it's a legit lead. A team's going to kick a field goal. You're going to overtime anyway. It's not that bad. It's it's not bad. It's actually very little downside to this kind of a gamble. But routinely as, as aggressive and as innovative and smart or sharp of a play caller as this guy is, he fails to go for the jugular in this spot and it bugged me to death. And he makes decisions like this a lot. He does that a lot. It's it's He's kind of calling it by the heat of his pants. And even in his explanation of, of his, his rationale in that situation. I mean, he said he felt like, you know, he'd been lucky earlier in the game. He didn't want to press his luck. And this is the kind of a decision maker he was. The kind of a decision making style that he has. And it's a poor choice. And it's, 
it's bad decision making. Last year it was more multitasking where it just seemed like he was calling the offense, thinking about what's going on with the defense, and then he didn't even get a chance to get the challenge flag out in time. In this case, in this time, I think it was it's just him going by the seat of his pants, having been put in a position where he's focused more on managing the game and not doing the play calling, which is better at doing, I guess. I don't know. And then there's, of course, the issue of, okay, he's the play caller, he's calling the plays, you know, he's calling the making the decision to go for it on these decisions, but he's not actually being the person who's calling the plays as well, which is also a terrible aspect of what happened in this coaching job, this coaching situation. Why well, I felt like that really wasn't something that was his, necessarily his fault. It was a difficult situation, to be sure. So I'd say, of course, the positive things were, you know, his media stuff was good. He was good at keeping people up balance his play calling, and he was good at giving the guys to get a good effort, even through a very, very, very negative time. But bad, of course, is his game managing, his multitasking. He also blamed players and shifted responsibility in the media. We talked about the trade fiasco and his job as a talent evaluator. These are all the things that obviously make it so he deserves to be out of here. Additionally, something that I only recently started to think, the fact that the Browns chased Josh Gordon and Carlos Hyde out of town, in a way, I think I more link these types of moves to things that Hugh Jackson did. I mean, you look at this battle between Dorsey, not Dorsey, I'm sorry, the battle between Coach Jackson and Haley, and as it was portrayed in the media, and right off the bat, you have Hugh Jackson saying that Josh Gordon is not going to start, and in the first week, according to Todd Haley, Hugh, Hugh Jackson's a liar, and Josh Gordon does get to start. And I really don't think that Hugh Jackson appreciated walking that back for the decision that Haley made that time. And I have a feeling that running Josh Gordon was about Hugh Jackson establishing an era of accountability in this situation. So I know you guys know how I feel about Josh Gordon and how upset that situation makes me. And so in some ways, like I just want to start piling on even more with Coach Jackson because that really bugs me when coaches decide that their personal agendas, their personal ideology, their personal sense of how things should go should be more important than having, you know, talent on a football team. Like, I get it. In my opinion, I think the way you have to do that is to manage that situation and to manage the spot. Man, exactly what the championship teams will do in this situation. Exactly what a team like the Patriots are going to do. He's going to come in. He's going to follow the rules and do what he's supposed to do. And if he doesn't, he's going to get fined and get none of his game checks. Sorry, you get follow the rules. That's it. You know, that's all the coach really needs to do in that situation to manage the situation. Hold him accountable using the mechanisms you have in place. But that's not what happened with Jackson. Jackson went outside those mechanisms. And, and in the end, like, even when you go back and play through what happened with that Josh Gordon fiasco, you think about the news coming out at first. Oh, this guy's gone. He's done. It's over. You know, it's gone. He's done. Um, maybe if we can get a trade for him, we'll trade. It's like you decide he's out of the organization before you announce that you might want to trade him. Essentially tank his trade value. And that's not something that any GM would do. But it is something that Hugh Jackson would do. Like I said, cat not in his lane. <laughs> not in his lane. And the same thing is true with Carlos Hyde. You know, the Browns had a great goal line back in Carlos Hyde. But if the coach didn't feel like his guy is getting enough touches, let's just ship Carlos Hyde out of here. Problem solved, right? And people thought initially that's Dorsey. That's Dorsey deciding that, hey, you know what? We have to get this guy the ball, so we'll get him out of here. But, you know, you look at the, the move, the compensation, how it was. That looks like something that Hugh Jackson decided. And you wonder, hey, is this guy getting out of his lane too much? Is this what's called? And is he solving his problems by taking it out on other uh, staff members by cutting players and getting guys out of the organization to solve his issues? If that's what he was doing, man, that makes me so upset. I'm really upset because, yes, 
if that's what he was doing, he should have been gone. But it shouldn't have been gone in the middle of this year. He should have been gone last year. Because that's the kind of stuff that he was doing last year as well. At the very latest, dude should have been dropped after Coco's New England. Uh, that was such a good line too. <laughs> At the very least, he should be dropped after Coco's New Year's Eve ball dropping. Truck stop should have turned the page without question there. But you remember what happened after that. You know, the city went crazy. Everybody got upset. If truck stop would have been like, you know what? We, we, we've seen enough of this show. We need to move on now. If truck stop would have done it then, you know, I'm cool. But no, we had like, we had a protest. There was a protest on the streets in six degree weather. Two, 3,000 people showed up for this protest. Because even after all we witnessed with Coach Jackson doing the same kind of ridiculous stuff that he's been doing in the past through the media, talking to his media guys, communicating, and, and just basically being an all-around worm tongue. All that stuff he had done in the past. It's something that he's already done. And so... The fact that he came in 2018 and did the same thing and got fired halfway through the year. I mean, come on, really? What does this really say about our ownership? Our ownership who allows this kind of a guy to be in his ear and doesn't know how to get him out. And what does this say about Dorsey? I mean, I think Dorsey has finally found his way into the proper place in the organization. And it seems as if they're going to hire the next guy through Dorsey. It seems like Dorsey and... Haslam went together in that room. And flat out, if you're going to pick one dude to marry yourself to in an organization with the owner, you want like one dude, man, pick a GM. Don't pick a coach. Pick a GM. A GM. A guy who has some perspective and distance. Like you should as the owner of an organization. Right? Well, hopefully we made a big step today. I mean, it's very troubling. Uh, it's hard to win in the NFL. If anybody knows that, it's us. And I think the message today is we're not going to put up with internal discord. You know, that was the part of the the speech that stuck out to me the most. You're not going to put up with internal discord. You're not going to put up with internal discord. And that's why Banner's not here. And that's why Chud's not here. And that's why Ray Farmer's not here. Yet at some point you look around and you wonder, like, where's the problem? Because this should have happened a year ago. And no one really cares. I mean, people are happy the dude's gone by now, but this is actually a really big problem how it happens now. It's not just happening, you know, at the end of a season where you have the off season to, you know, deal with the in, the media implications of what happened. This is going on in smack dab in the middle of the season, right in the middle of the season. They got a game to play against the best team in the league on Sunday. And this kind of stuff doesn't help. Ownership should understand firing coaches in the middle of the year is incredibly disruptive to everyone. Why are they doing this? Why do they think that's okay to do? And why is nobody freaking out about it? Everybody's like, ding dong, the witch is dead. But they don't realize they're trapped in Oz. It's a jacked up situation, no? I, 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 you know, I think I'm hopeful. Maybe, maybe Dorsey, maybe Dorsey gets his proper voice. Maybe Dorsey, Dorsey starts to get in his ear and hopefully it turns around because at least Dorsey will have a 10,000 foot view as well and be able to see things from that perspective, not get caught up in the day-to-day issues that come up around a coach and this petty squabbles between coaches on this issue and that issue. Hopefully Dorsey can have that perspective and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully Haslam can <laughs> go along with Dorsey in this, in this uh, upcoming time as we ended this year. But for real, honestly, speed, this is a really bad problem. Having a coach being fired in the middle of a year, because essentially you're having your rookie quarterback, young Baker Mayfield. Uh, you're guaranteeing that in his first two seasons, he will have three offensive coordinators. And that's just a recipe for disaster. I mean, looking back, historically speaking, John Dorsey should understand that you get a young a valuable asset like quarterback you get the pieces in place to build around him and lock him in play get him some experience you don't fire your coach you don't bring in coaches that you feel like you might want to fire 
Uh, man, I, I don't know, man. This is kind of a hard topic to digest. It's kind of one that a lot of Browns fans don't really want to spend a lot of time dealing with. You know, There's really nothing fans can do with respect to these kind of ownership decisions. So instead, we just take time to revel in the fact that some coach has finally been held responsible. And Jackson clearly had his flaws, you know. I just hope that going forward, the coaching decision goes through John Dorsey. As this is, in fact, the true path to eliminate all of the dysfunction that's been going out, going on in this organization. Having a flowchart where the GM and coaches are on the same level as has happened in the Browns organization over the past few years. It's a bad thing because it sets up the discord. It places the ultimate power of a franchise in the hands of a relative hobbyist. Let's hope that it is Dorsey. For all that is good, for all that it's right, let's hope John Dorsey gets to make the decision regarding the coach coming up for the Browns' future. I mean, Dorsey has been interesting for sure. He's been a Attempting to put the focus on finishing the year out properly, as well as on the development of young Baker Mayfield. And this is the right move. I'm not sure uh, how they had to change course to come to this opinion. I mean, I guess I know why. They had to change course to pick Mayfield in the middle of the year because they have a lot of bad ideology driving their decision making. Yeah, this bad ideology thought process works like this. It basically would be like Hugh thinking last year we were bad because we started rookie. And yeah, of course, Deshaun Kaiser was pretty historically bad. And this year, we're also going to suck if we play a rookie. So I want to keep my job. So let's just hold off from rushing this young kid out there. So we don't have the same type of year that we had in the previous season. It's ideology. This idea that you stick to the principles that you believe in no matter what. If anything, I hope this coaching staff ditches any and all of its former ideology. Because I think that's the thing that's given this team the most problems. There's really only one thing that matters to this organization. And that is doing things the right way for the right reasons. And these solutions should be done because they work. We're really missing a pragmatic element to our staff. One that doesn't care who gets the credit or who gets the blame. Where people aren't trying to be right all the time. People aren't trying to bust other people out. Instead of trying to be right, they're just trying to win. They're not trying to focus on rolling some dice or getting lucky you're focused on being prepared you control what you can control that is pragmatism you don't run players who you need on your roster to solve ideological differences that's completely counterproductive you need as much talent on your roster as possible to win because that's going to give you the most practical opportunity to be successful going into the game this week against Kansas City we're going to have a chance to see the unveiling of a new play caller Freddie Kitchens and I'm very excited to see what happens this Sunday at Ohio Edison Stadium we heard from Freddie at the top of the show as he spoke to the media before the Detroit game this preseason you know, I, I I I think it's really interesting how a lot of times people talk about how every day is an interview for you. And this piece that he had from before the Detroit game was a really interesting um, view into the guy that Freddie Kitchens is in this organization without having the pressure of being a, an offensive coordinator. I loved hearing the part, the line that he says at the beginning about motivation 
of the media and players. He was saying that media is chasing controversy and players are chasing stats. Man, that's insightful. Why? Of course, money. I thought that was gold. Really insightful. And it kind of shows you the kind of character, the kind of candor that that guy has. I think he's going to be a cut to the chase kind of a guy. He's going to look to understand how parties are motivated. And I'm guessing he's going to be right. As far as the promotion you could hope for in this spot. If you had a different quarterback, a more green quarterback, if it was Deshaun Kaiser, this would be the worst case scenario for that kind of a guy. But in this case, Kitchen's inexperience in the spot will put more of a load on the part that you actually want to be carrying the offense. And that's Baker Mayfield. That's why he was so successful in the Detroit game. Baker was able to be Baker and the play callers and coaches were invested in just him. Baker was trying to play well, but I felt like even more than trying to play well and get kind of the last action he was expecting to get for quite some time. He was also trying to get some of those third and fourth string players paid. Remember the game that Kajus had? That was a lot because Baker Mayfield targeted that guy. I got he was trying to spread things out. He's trying to help everybody else get success. And ultimately, it wasn't Kajus that got it, but Willie's. His contribution actually got him onto the 53-man roster eventually. You know, that's the trait that really makes Baker Mayfield stand out as a prospect. He's a kind of a leader who tries to get everyone paid. He has the ability. But it's that leadership that people rally around. It's so easy to cheer for a guy who notices that stuff and works his tail off to make everybody else around him better. We saw it at the Jets. We saw it in Oakland. And it was so easy to cheer for. But after the Oakland game, we saw the leash come out, and it was because of the turnovers. The cost of the turnovers in that game were, were, were pretty critical. And, you know, basically Oakland should have never been in that game at all. But they won in that game in part because of critical Deshaun Kaiser-like turnovers, which kept Oakland in the game. I argue that they wanted to control these turnovers. And in the, their their um, attempt to rein this stuff in, that control that the coaches exerted, this ended up working in the first game against Baltimore. There were no turnover situations there. But I think whatever happened ended up um, really stunting Baker Mayfield's growth because I think he's going to have to make mistakes. I know Jackson was probably at a place where he couldn't tolerate those mistakes after going through what he did last year and losing every game because of them. But no matter what, you got to expect them. And you could never hope to completely mitigate them. And what you saw from Baker in Oakland is close to what I expect from him this Sunday because the coaches who are guided by rookie-averse ideology and we're coaching from fear, these coaches who were calling them out as well are now gone. Remaining are G-Will and Kitchens. So, how do you feel about G-Will as a game manager? There was a discussion about what game, uh, about this one game where some team was trailing uh, by 14 points, scores a touchdown, and decides to go for two. Uh, this this is a really interesting point because of some of the decisions we had in, with the Browns with Coach Jackson failing to make these decisions in the past. But there's a poster, probably the smartest poster on the entire site. JD. JD, I think we call him. Dreyfus. Joey Dreyfus. I don't know. Anyways, JD defended the, the uh, point that Almost every time in this spot, going for two is defensible, and it's great. And he gave us the numbers to show, uh, to show that it provided some positive value to attempt this at a 50% clip every time. And essentially, after this, the discussion was going on, people kind of were agreeing that like, you should go for two way more often. And this is, if that's the whole point of what he was saying, I thought that was probably a decent point. 
But while I concede in some ways that if you're trailing by 14, going for two, there is some expected value that you could have by always trying to get these points. What I want to do is make sure that if I'm the decision maker in this spot, not that I'm using some actuary chart to decide what to do, but that I'm actually getting the values that are supposed in the chart that make it successful for me. That like if I'm going for two, that my play calls got 50% chance of actually succeeding. Like actually, if I'm going for two, I want to feel like the chance of succeeding is something like 75, 80%. Like I want to feel really confident about this. So I'm really getting my value for this kind of a play. But in any case, like I said, if you look at it just from an actuary point of view, just look at numbers. I don't think it really tells you much about any decision because you don't really have every aspect of what's involved in the decision in the actual situation. There's no situation where any specific play is actually 50% likely to succeed. I mean, maybe it's a little bit more, a little bit less given people's expectation of the play or given the situation or given how much you've done in the past. There's so much that goes into whether or not it's 50%. It's not as if like you're in a situation like at a card table where you have aces and that guy has, you know, kings and you know you have whatever percentage value over and whatever the cards come, whatever. It's not like that. Your choice and your play call actually is affecting this percentage. It's not like you have random cards that are fixed values. They're not. There are spots in games where you should never... I would say there's basically never a spot where you should always assume that the right action is one way every time. There are some times in the game where, for example, the game where Todd Gurley was playing where... He broke free and could have scored a touchdown with a few minutes left. Generally speaking, that would give the team a, what a bunch of, a two score lead in the remaining seconds. But instead of scoring the touchdown, Todd Gurley decided to, to down it inside the inside the ten yard line or something. And it, honestly speaking, it's the correct play. Your goal is to win the game. Your goal is to be pragmatic about what you're doing. I can't believe that people didn't celebrate that kind of a move. And that there were so many people that were saying, eh, how could he not go in? It seems like it would be better. And they, the, the, the line of the game, who cares? That Todd Gurley shouldn't be caring about the line of the game. And the fact that he kneeled down shows us that he, he cared about winning more than anything and didn't want to give the ball to the opposition because he doesn't have to. The game can be over right now. You can kneel down and it's over. Excellent, excellent play. And in, and in my opinion, Every option, everything should always be on the table to every coach in every situation. And whether you should or shouldn't go for two, you know, it depends on a lot of things. You got to rely on your gut. But in the end, you don't have time to spell out your rationalizations at these spots in the game. But when you reflect, you've got to be able to break it down and learn to be better when you make a mistake. Let's hope Greg Williams can be better, but... How do you actually feel about this position being given to Greg Williams? Initially, I think he's a tough talker, man. He speaks with Rex Ryan-like bravado. He will make choices that protect his defense. But do you think he will insist that the run game and short passing game be emphasized as a way to keep them guys fresh? You know, we're not going to have to wait long to find out. Going into the Sunday's game, the Browns are more than seven-point dogs at home. Probably way more. Last week, I predicted a win out of sheer hope. The final score was never close, but the game was actually not as bad as the score indicated. It was over going into the fourth. The teams pretty much played like it, and after the Browns missed that extra point uh, after they were able to score off that fluky free kick, which I forgot about this too. That fluky free kick safety was set up by Jabril Peppers failing to field a kick that landed outside the 10-yard line. So, I mean, mistakes, mistakes, mistakes. They got to cut that stuff down too. But at the same time, I felt like the game was over after the mixed extra point after that, um, after the touchdown from the safety. Even though I thought they had more chances to come out of it and make a game, in the end, it was pretty much over then. This time, the game's at home. (laughs) They're going to be coming off an incredibly emotional period with their head coach and offensive coordinator being replaced against now what is clearly a Super Bowl contender. 
You'd be smart to fade the Browns in this spot because management has pretty much already signaled that the year is over. I mean, it wouldn't take much for Mahomes to end this game before halftime and make this a really silly situation. If that did happen, I would not be surprised at all. But when I break down this game in my head, I feel like the coaches have to know what they have to do to keep this from happening. The Browns are going to have to turn the Chiefs over like they've done all year to have any chance of winning. I think they have to get uh, at least two up in the turnover department to close the expected production gap that I'm expecting to see this Sunday. They also have to run the ball on the Chiefs, which is possible. I would say that the Broncos last week failed to do so uh, in early in the second half. We lied too heavily on the pass. Uh, the, that's the end of the first of all. We lied too heavily on the pass and took too many critical sacks and picks. Uh, they might throw just as many um, or throw just as many passes as they've done in the past. But they have to throw the ball uh, more to the backside of the backfield, as well as getting the wide receivers uh, involved in sweeps, misdirections. Hopefully, Callaway and not Landry, and even a couple of design rollouts. Anything to get the offense. In a rhythm. But. You got to possess the ball. Against uh, Mahomes and the Chiefs. To keep the D as fresh as you can. You got to frustrate him. And frustrate him early. And that's. The only real path to victory right. You're going to have to score points. And be better than I think the Browns are right. They have to keep. uh, The. Chiefs offense under 30. And continue to pressure them as by getting out ahead early and playing successful keep away and finishing drives with points, right? I guess like that sounds like a little bit of a crazy path to victory. Maybe you can't really see this happening. And it seems easier to imagine losing. I mean, you can't imagine that the Chiefs are stupid with Andy Reid running the ship and all that talent on offense. They can just sit there and pound the Browns on the ground all day long. While we scramble to tackle Hunt, they can just gash us in the seam with Kelsey. And when we're trying to stop Kelsey, they can throw the ball to any number of wide receivers that can gas us. I don't think that there's really enough playmakers on this team to keep it close, on paper at least. Money will take it the Chiefs big. Money will take the Chiefs. It seems too obvious. But let's look closer at the teams and their identity with the top five on the Browns offense. At one this week, I, of course, I have Baker Mayfield again, although he had a shaky game at some points. Still feel like he's the key to this offense and the key to what we're going to do moving forward with this team. At two, we have uh, Jarvis Landry, the same as last week. I still think he is a great weapon, although obviously not necessarily the best spotted X. Still a great possession receiver, and hopefully we can do more to get him the ball going into this game. The key, though, to any attempt to win this game is definitely going to be number three, Nick Chubb. Nick Chubb has got to establish himself in the running game. He's got to suck up the clock, and he's got to be consistent on first and second downs. To put the team in manageable, makeable third down situations. It was just, he has the type of situation where he'll break a 10 or 12 yard run, then get stuck and leave the team in bad down, down and distance situations. And then the defense uh, would be able to overcome the Browns offense and force them to change possession or something. And in, in some ways, Nick Chubb has got to be more consistent on those early downs, getting the short situations and keeping drives going. But for me, when Chubb is a feature runner in this game and he gets a lot of carries and gets a lot of rhythm and what he does, this is the path to true victory for Cleveland. And I can only hope that the promotions of the running back coach, Freddie Kitchens, will signal this type of a development. Number four is David Njoku. And I'm telling you something about David Njoku right now. He has got to be employed in the red zone. And he's been good periodically, you know, in the last few games. And he was able to get a pass interference call that really set up a touchdown in the game. But for me, David Njoku has got to be. I mean, you just got to throw him the ball. I mean, every time you get within the 20-yard line, at least one pass has to be feathered up to David Njoku in the end zone. You have to do it at least once. 
it's either going to be a pass interference or a touchdown or something good's going to happen when you get that guy involved. Let's let's make sure this is a focus. In the end, player five was Zeitler, who played another good game on the offensive line, but in, like on the whole, of course, against Pittsburgh, it was a pretty tough game for those guys. But we have to see if they can get themselves right, especially with um, the situation going on with... Uh, Harrison, you know, I really hated the situation with Harrison getting called for holding in the end zone because he was kind of an island. And I feel like on some, in some cases, the play calling has to be a little more protective of some of those young offensive linemen, well, of our one young offensive lineman in that critical position at left tackle. Um, so it was a little bit uh, concerning about this. Hopefully we have a little more attack to what we're doing so that we can get those offensive linemen moving forward and get them a little more comfortable playing this way. Um, I also don't think I talked enough about, I mean, we talked a bit about Chubb being a feature runner, but I think last week, a big problem was Johnson was scheduled to get a lot of the touches. And I feel like the team kind of game plan to have Johnson be the feature back, the starting tailback with Chubb still sort of spelling him, which I... I don't understand why you would do that. Like I, on one level, I I get about how Chubb, I get how it is with Chubb. Chubb does not catch the ball well out of the backfield, and that limits what you're going to do with somebody a pass catcher in that spot. You need to have somebody that can run and catch it. I mean, there's two things you can do. One, you could just throw the ball to him more and find ways to get him the ball out of the backfield as a receiver, which is fine. But in the end, the choice to go and to shift the load to Duke, it's like. Who, haven't you watched this team for years? Don't you know how much load Duke can take traditionally? He's not uh, every down back. He's the kind of back that comes in and spells people, and he does a great job at that. A third down back, he can get a couple extra carries and maybe some extra spots and be on the field a bit more, but essentially that's who he is. The Browns have got to turn and rely on Chubb to be the guy to tote the rock on a consistent basis. If they turn to Chubb in these spots, yes, 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 yes. This is what they need to do. Develop a sort of rhythm with him and see what what happens. They ride this guy. They could be this kind of success like he had in Oakland. We'll have to see how it goes with this guy. We'll have to see. On the defense, the top five players, it's no question, no doubt who number one is. It's always this year. It's been Miles Garrett. But after Garrett, I would say Kirko and Collins have snuck their way into the top five higher positions. Kirko next, great picks. Collins also had a pick last week, and I just I just appreciate the way that they played. Collins also was a very tough tackler of call of um, uh, James Connor, the running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I felt like he was as sure of a tackler as they had on that defense, and I really appreciated watching Jamie Collins play in that spot. Um, and number four, we have Denzel Ward, who played well as well, but he gave up a big touchdown pass. And then last was Ogba, who also made his presence felt on the defensive line. Uh, they definitely need to get that that unit going. Ogba rushing even from the interior sometimes. I, I just feel like there's so much potential for that defensive line to be an established force other teams have to deal with on a consistent basis. And it is already, but it could just has the potential to be so much more when Ogba and Ogunjobi and Miles Garrett are getting after the passer. I think this week, I think Mahomes will hold the ball longer than um, than Roethlisberger and teams that had success against the Browns. So there is a chance. However, they only have to hit a couple passes to Hill before the game is way out of reach. So let's uh, cross these bridges when we come to it. The matchup against the Steelers is pretty much what I expected, though. It's a few swings. And it may have been different. This time it's at home as opposed to the road game they had last week. And I do think the Browns have a prayer in this game. No one thinks that they're going to win. So that's why I'm going to get... I'm going to reach into my couch cushions and pull out all the cash that I can find and put it all on Cleveland. I'm going to the bookie right now as soon as I turn off the show. I'm putting all my money from the couch cushions and my couch on the Browns. Covering this game and getting the over because I'm sure it's going to be. I'm betting on Baker uncuffed from fear. Shot. You've been listening to Straight No Chaser with my dad, Lelonious Seven, on DVN Network.
Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.